Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm with Audrey Waters, and it is Saturday, December 10th, and this is our weekly Hack Education Roundup podcast. Hi, Audrey. Hello. I sure loved your writing this week. Oh, thank you. I, I think there's something about going back and reviewing that has given you the opportunity to kind of refine some of the ideas. Much of what you're covering in the trends isn't new to you, right. but it's fun to see you kind of pull it together. It's been a really interesting process of doing these roundup posts. So I've decided to pick out 10 of the trends that I think are the um, most important or um, have uh, have been the most interesting of um, this year. And you're right, it's it's definitely been an opportunity for me to go back and really look at some of the events that happened, some of the new companies, some of the experiences that teachers and students and principals and politicians have, have had around education technology this year. And I've been learning a lot just, you know, especially, you know, I mean, sometimes I have a hard time remembering what happened, you know, in, in November. So to look back and be like, oh, gosh, yeah, that in January, that was huge. It's definitely given me a different perspective um, on, you know, some of these categories. Well, I'm giving two thumbs up to these posts. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, but let's start with my Goosebump of the Week award. The cheering crowd at Virginia Tech asking for the Burmese pro-democracy leader to come on Skype and talk to them. Yeah. What a moment. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, this, um, this, this story was interesting in a number of ways, partially because I heard about it from a former, um, from a, a former student of of um, this geography professor at, at, um, at Virginia Tech, John Boyer, who teaches a class with 3,000 students in it. And he does so in part because I think he's just an absolutely well-loved teacher. Um, and the, the former student sent me a note saying that they'd managed to convince um, Aung San Suu Kyi to, to visit the class via Skype. Um, he, so uh, Professor Boyer makes these video pitches posts them on YouTube and for a variety of people. And he's managed to convince, you know, Martin Sheen came to the school, to the school last year. Um, and so she, she saw the video pitch. I mean, like you said, these cheer, this huge auditorium of cheering students. So she attended um, the class Monday evening and they had an interesting conversation with her about technology and um, freedom and freedom of speech. And it was amazing considering, you know, she's not currently under house arrest, but she she can't leave the country. She has restricted access to the media, and yet, you know, three thousand students at Virginia Tech were able to to talk to her. Powerful. Do you know if the event was recorded? Um, it was recorded, and there is um, there is video on uh, Professor Boyer's. Professor Boyer has a UStream site. I should go back and update the post. He has a UStream site where he holds um, office hours. And so the the video, I think he was streaming the video there, and he's gonna. I think he said he was gonna post it onto YouTube. So, sounds like he's also fairly proactive in his use of social media. Is that a part of his attraction as a professor? I think so, and I think it's one of the things that makes him able to get away with having three thousand students in a class, right? I mean, he runs. He had there. Of course, there are several teaching assistants, but you know, he runs a Twitter back channel during the lecture. Um, and I think he does a number of things in order to make sure that when you're when you're talking to a class of that size, um, he does as many things as possible to make sure that everyone is engaged, and not just engaged as in paying attention, but engaged as in having an opportunity to um, you know to interact with 
um, with each other and with, with the TAs and with himself. It was reminiscent for me of Mike Wash, who seems to do a really good job of actually having the students in these large classes build their own experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just the fact that this former student you know, said that his, her, his class sort of changed her life, and she's now actually um, works in social media and education. I thought that was an interesting testament. This wasn't the professor or Virginia, Virginia Tech even promoting this event. This was a former student who heard about it and took it upon herself. I think she emailed several, um, several places. I think Vicki Davis had a story about it on her blog, and a couple other EdTech blogs did as well. How fun. Okay, so trend number three in your top ed tech trends of 2011 was text messaging. This yeah. was interesting because it's hard to separate out text messaging necessarily from mobile phones or mobile devices. But clearly, text messaging in itself, in and of itself, is reaching ubiquity. Yes. I mean, and I think that that's one of the important things that um, I've I felt like I've stressed a lot this year is, yeah, you know, this is an example of mobile learning. In some cases, you know, that there were pretty, some, some pretty significant movements this year in schools letting students, I'm talking K-12 students, um, bring their own devices uh, to school. Um, but I think that the cell phone, but I think that that's, it's important to remember that the cell phone in most kids' hands is not yet a smartphone. And so even though we've seen great apps be built this year um, for iOS and for Android, that really if you're going to talk about a technology that is um, that everyone has and cell phone penetration has reached almost 100% um, in the world, um, then it's text messaging. Text messaging is the, is the communication tool that parents can access, teachers can access, and students can access. I think that makes it really powerful. I'm I'm interested that there are some features that are not yet smartphone features, but I almost feel like are kind of a part of the core cell phone piece, like the calendar. Mm-hmm. I mean, for my kids, I noticed they started using calendars with their cell phones before they were smartphones in a way that I was never able to get them to use a paper calendar. Yep. And I mean, maybe maybe and I, the calculator? I, th- I would say, the, I was going to say the calculator. I even think the camera... Um, and even some, you know, some of the some of the feature phones ha- offer video as well as just um, photography. And I think all of these all of these things make even a very simple cell phone a pretty powerful tool um, in the hands of students. So I interviewed Lisa Nielsen this week, who's in the and the the recording is up. Her book is a Teaching Generation Text. And as I went through the book, I was kind of stunned at just how obvious the value was that I had not been thinking of. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I think that it's, it's been really interesting for me to see, too, I mean, this was one of the things I wrote about in, in that post, the number of um, startups that um, were founded this year to sort of handle this text messaging piece, that it's something that's, you know, I think a lot of people are starting to recognize that it's, a, um, it's an important it's an important communication tool, but it's also an extraordinarily easy, I mean, not to, not to diminish um, these companies' product, but it's actually a pretty easy thing to build, um, which I think, again, puts, it in the, puts this tool in the hands of a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise, you know, be able to or think about using um, apps or, or more, um, more complicated tech. Yeah, as I looked at that list of companies, 
that you have, have in the uh, projects that are in the post. But that was kind of my worry, which is this is such easy technology to build. How hard is it going to be to be a single focused, single product focused company in an arena where the, the tech is not that complex? Very, I would say very hard. Um, I think that of the companies that I listed, I, I mean, I'm not sure that um, any of them are profitable yet. Um, and of them, I think Selly, the one out of Portland, is the one that's most interesting to me because it actually has some pretty complicated technology underlying um, underlying its uh, uh, its infrastructure that allows for some different usages and more complicated communication tools. The city of Portland is actually using it as a neighborhood, uh, sort of like a neighborhood crime watch. And it has the ability to sort of have a command and control structure so that you could have neighbors text into one number and the information feeds up to perhaps a district. Um, and then that feeds up to, you know, sort of different, la- different levels, um, which again would be great for schools to have, you know, students in one class and the information sort of move up um, sort of move up the, the hierarchy in a school to teacher, to principal, to district. Which makes it very much of an institutional sale. Mm-hmm. And and that would seem to really favor companies that already have relationships with schools selling technical projects. It does. I mean, it, I mean, this is, some, this is the sort of thing that, you know, I would imagine something like PowerSchool, Pearson's PowerSchool could perhaps implement. Um, has anybody solved the cost of texting issue? Meaning the, there's this sort of elephant in the room of the fact that these plans cost money to families is that still an issue this is a thing that i think it actually um actually is is an issue and i'm really curious to see sort of what's gonna what's gonna happen with this particularly with the rise of the smartphone i mean as much as i say that kids don't have smartphones right now they certainly have them more and more um and the the numbers are actually pretty pretty surprising um even young, you know, even young sort of third graders might have uh, might have a smartphone, smartphone, or they might have an iPod Touch, which allows them to use some of these apps that let you bypass the text messaging fees. Which you're right. I mean, the sort of dollar for dollar, you know, uh, byte per byte texting is far more expensive than sending any sort of message through your data plan. Um, so I have to think that the that the that the um, carriers are going to do whatever they can to sort of um, keep this sort of cash cow, the text messaging cash cow in place. But I think the pressure for free, free alternatives, um, I'm not sure what, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen. We may not drill down on this today, but kind of as food for thought. Uh, so I, we, our 13 year old has a smartphone with a data plan and I consider that an educational investment and so that's thirty dollars a month, which is a lot of money, mm-hmm. but it's it's easy money to spend compared with other educational costs. She's not in a private school, but I feel like the educational value of this device is so high that I really want her familiar fluent, and she's actually a really good user of the phone. But not everybody can afford three hundred sixty dollars a year right. for their child. Right. I mean, and you know, I think that the text messaging the. I mean, the one thing I would say about text messaging is if you have a, a, a child with a cell phone and you don't have an unlimited texting plan, then you're probably silly. I mean, I'm shocked at the amount of texts that my my teenage son sends. Uh, and, uh, you know, and girls, girls do send more texts than boys, but 
text messaging is the way in which my son communicates. He has a, you know, and he has an Android phone, and but he, he won't call me. He won't call his friends. He, he texts them. So. Oh, there's so many stories there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. What he's doing to us socially and all kinds of interesting stuff. Okay, let's move on. So you you write a post about your struggles with Google Scholar citations. You <laughs> had is, two problems. <laughs> this is one of the joys of, of being a, of being a writer is that when you run into your own text technology roadblocks, you sort of get to like make it um, make it well known. And Google actually um, has created, I think, a really cool tool um, for for scholars and academics, and it's called Google Scholar Citations. And it's a little sort of um, analytics dashboard that tracks the tracks the number of times that and the places in which your your work is is cited. Um, and that's it's based on their uh, Google Scholar. Um, search, which, you know, just looks at academic, um, sort of academic journal articles and the like. Um, and I tried to, they, it's been in beta for a while. They just opened it up a couple of weeks ago and I thought I'd sign up, um, you know, how we're all merging all of our various identities in this new Google social SEO search world. And, uh, I just had a lot of trouble, least of which being because I'm no longer affiliated with a university and I no longer have a .edu address that I wasn't able to get, so I wasn't able to complete my profile. And Google sort of reminded me I was an unaffiliated, um, an unaffiliated academic, which I think a lot of people are. And so it's just a sort of an oversight on Google's part. Well, yeah, and you get to call them out on it. I do. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, we're gonna maybe we should do uh, a little bit more on Google right away. So, uh, uh, edu-related search data from Google. Very interesting results. Yeah, this I thought this was interesting too. I mean, particularly because I think you know we we've heard a lot about, um, or I mean, in some circles, there's been a lot of talk about this notion that maybe people shouldn't go back to school any longer. Um, that if they do, they should be looking at um, you know certain kinds of jobs, certain you know perhaps technology kinds of jobs. And so what Google Google handed me over their uh, third quarter search data, educational um, search data, which was fascinating a fascinating look at what people are actually searching for um, in terms of degrees, degree programs, subject areas. Um, I, I thought it was I thought it was really interesting considering all that we hear about. Um, you know, PhD people not wanting to do PhDs because of the PhD, you know, the job market, or people not wanting to, or people, you know, pressures to for looking for new teachers, for example. Um, it was just interesting to see actually what people were looking for. So, to the degree that these searches reflect general interest, mm -hmm. this, one of the surprises was the number of searches for liberal arts. Right. That's what I thought too. I mean, and and I, you know, I I didn't really dive too deeply in why that might be, but but certainly. With the sort of narrative you hear right now, which is if you're going to go back to school, make sure it's a quote, you know, it's a sort of job training or something that has a clear employment outcome at the end at the end of your uh, program. I thought that liberal arts was as popular as technology and engineering, or what uh, was pretty interesting to me. Yeah. You also mentioned that uh, there's still strong brand searching. Now, when you say brand, I'm assuming like Stanford or Harvard. Is that the kind of brand? I'm not sure. Google didn't actually drill down what they meant by this. I mean, it could it could be that that's what they meant. Um, 
and yeah, people were definitely looking for brands as opposed to particular degrees. So it could be that they were looking, for example, for University of Phoenix. Um, it could be that they were looking for a particular um, or particular other particular schools, private or you know, nonprofit or for profit. Interesting. I'm intrigued that Google gives you an advanced peek at anything. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I did run that story the day after my other one, so That's maybe they funny. haven't had time to see it and snatch away the data. Okay, so trend four of your EdTech trends uh, is data. Yes. And, and this led me to a very interesting sort of thought meme that kept running through my head this week, uh, which is um, increasingly sophisticated factory models are still factory models <laughs> and it related a couple of stories that that came up here but but here it's about uh you you're quoting george siemens you're looking at learning analytics and input and output and then george sort of cautions about the softer elements of learning when you've got so much data that you feel like you can learn from the data yes. <sighs> tell me how you're thinking about this well, I mean, I think that this is um, this is really interesting. And a uh, story I didn't write about, but I'm not sure if you noticed this week, um, Will Richardson went and visited with the Newton folks in New York, and he wrote a post about his his response to this as well. And I think that, I mean, I think that this is precisely precisely the thing is that we are able to capture quite a bit of information now that students are you know interacting so much um, through the computer we can we can capture all sorts of other new information that we weren't necessarily able to to see before um, in terms of how long they how long they pause for example on a program um, or on a question or do they sort of read the whole do they read the whole chapter of a book that we assign um, but it's still just a very partial glimpse uh, into the, into that, and there's there's only some things that we are able to measure. Um, so I do think that if we race too far down, embracing the um, this data piece, that we're really going to sort of do all that we can to make that that data capture as easy as possible. And that's certainly more multiple choice tests, more um, you know, more computer uh, more computer interaction for testing. And I don't know. This has become kind of a running theme for you and me. Yeah. Um, it was Will Richardson's story that raised the huge red flag for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to describe this briefly because I think this is going to be a fascinating long-term cultural conflict. Um, it reminded me of the ePals program where they created a, this tremendous service. It's a matrix of who can email whom within the New York City school system. Mm -hmm. And I left hearing about that program thinking – when are the kids ever going to learn themselves who it's appropriate to email when you've locked down exactly what they can do? And when I read Will's story, it was like, okay, so you've identified what time of the day and what the circumstances are. That's just a really sophisticated factory output. Yeah. At, at what point does the, does the power of the student becoming responsible for their own learning have to trump that kind of external control? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I'm fascinated, I mean, I am fascinated by the, some, the, the stuff that goes on sort of under the hood of these, of these um, adaptive startups. Um, I've really been trying, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a mathematically inclined person, but I've been trying to pick the brain of the data scientist at Grokket, for example, to sort of help me through, help explain to me how, um, how these adaptive 
systems work. And it is, it is a fascinating thing to think about, that you can get all of, these, all of this data from a student and then use that to help provide the next best question. But it still seems to me to be limited by all, all of these, sort of circumscribed by all of this other information, which is sort of what, what's the, you know, what is the list of questions to begin with? Or, um, you know, I still have a hard time believing it's useful in writing for example, as opposed to something like math, which is, you know, an easier sort of right-wrong. I had this matrix-like image of us, you know, in these these containers being fed, you know, in order to process our brain power. It's as though there's something at core important about our own learning of these things and our learning of ourselves and our independence that you would completely lose if somebody else is telling you when and where and how you need to be learning in order to to get an output that they want intellectually from you. Yeah, I mean, it certainly doesn't seem to be, um, it, it does seem to sort of take away that initi- individual initiative for learning and have it be, um, it's, not, it's not as though it's imposed from the top down, but it certainly is um, leading people down a one up specific path. It doesn't seem to be um, very sort of, indiv- although it's called sort of personalized learning, to me, it doesn't feel very personalized at all. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I know we're going to touch on this in the future. For me, there's a generative aspect to education, mm-hmm. sort of the the learning how to learn piece um, that this really that really misses for me. And especially given the shadow of the financial crisis, the cheating scandals, you know, it certainly feels like we need to be looking really hard again at. Uh, balancing when data is valuable and when it becomes yeah. a driver of a process that we don't actually like. Right. I mean, and I do think, you know, I mean, I, I do think that there are that, I mean, one of the things I really liked about the interview that I conducted with George was that I think that he's been making some arguments for um, for us to be thinking more, uh, more critically um, and more creatively about what we mean by data and educational data and learning anal- analytics. And I think that it's not, we really need to get beyond just looking at testing as, um, and which is sort of my, the thrust of this, um, of my story was that when we talk about data, we're really only looking at testing and that seems to be missing so, I mean, that's part of the reason I think why we're missing so much of the boat. This is the question I keep asking is, would they do this in Finland? I know that's not fair. I mean, I know Finland is sort of the story of the day, but the the educational outcomes and the and the completely different approach seem to to make that a productive question for me. Mm-hmm. And we'll ask that again today. Okay, so next trend was the digital library. We've talked about this you know a lot of times now, but I love how you brought in the stories about the innovative libraries and the libraries as community space learning spaces. Yeah, you know, this was one of the ones, I mean, several of these, like like you said at the beginning, I've been thinking through sort of what exactly the trend is. And I think an obvious choice this year for trends was ebooks. But it, when it comes to digital textbooks, I mean, we've spoken about this before, they're just not, they're just not there. And I'm just, I'm not even convinced that uh, the textbook sort of as we know it in printed form will be there in digital form. And I don't mean we've added quote, you know, interactivity and YouTube videos. That's, that doesn't cut it. So, but I, but I felt this was a hugely important year for libraries because of ebooks, the struggles that they're facing in order to sort of get them, um, to get ebooks to their patrons. 
uh, the struggles that they're facing with the different publishers who are locking things down and adding these restrictions. Um, all of this has led to a you know a lot of talk about the sort of the future of the library. Um, but I but there were some really amazing stories this year with libraries that are at the forefront of thinking about what it means to have this open, free, accessible community learning space. So how much of that is more theory than reality right now? Uh, well, I think, you mean, you mean in terms of how many libraries are actually at this, at this point? Yeah, I mean, I really love this idea, and I know there's some good examples, but I can tell you that, you know, at least in the communities that I've lived in in the last couple of years, very few people are seeing the libraries in this way. Yeah, my library, uh, the the U library here in Eugene, um, make it makes me quite sad. Um, in terms of its, well, I would say in terms of its move to sort of the next to to ebooks, um, and I think that, but I think that libraries are really ha going to have to. I mean, this is part of the struggle, isn't it? That that overdrive is um, overdrive is this sort of middleman. Um, that makes things complicated. Now Amazon is definitely involved. You can, if you rent, if you check out a book uh, through through on your Kindle at the end of your loan period, you get this sort of weird Amazon offer to buy the book, and it's um, it's definitely sort of blending this notion of the library space with the retail space in a new way. Um, I think that libraries are really going to have to look hard at what. At sort of what they're doing and what their vision is and what they what they mean and you know I go to my local library and it is in a lot of ways a it is a place where a lot of homeless people come and hang out for a warm dry spot and I think that's that is that community center though that place that actual place to go um, where you can sit and read is really important okay so uh, you have a story on cruelty to insects. <laughs> <laughs> I know this. The story was um, I had I had sort of these moments of thinking this is so wrong, this is so completely wrong, and yet it's so awesome. Yeah. Um, so this is Backyard Brains, which is a company. The company's been around for a while. It was founded by two neuroscientists um, who, when they were um, when they were teaching, when they were teaching college, they realized that they weren't able that they weren't able to sort of do some of the cool neuroscience experiments with their students, partially because, to, in order to sort of do neuroscience experiments on on humans, requires you know years of paperwork and sort of requests, and even and to do neuroscience on animals still requires a lot of um, a lot of money, and they they challenged each other to sort of how do you build a really inexpensive um, tool that anybody can use in order to sort of do some of this, um, do some of these hands-on neuroscience experiments. And they've built a pretty cheap little tool that you can connect a cockroach to and stimulate the cockroach's leg. And they've just released a new one as well that you, you remove the antenna from a cockroach and can connect this, what they call it a robo-coach, a robo-roach, and you can control the direction that the cockroach moves. So. Yeah, I loved and hated the story all at the same time. <laughs> and I think it's, but you know, it's funny, I was thinking like, 
We have been dissecting frogs in the classroom, for example, for a long, long time. I mean, the, the, the whole notion of frog dissection sort of came into, you know, came into vogue in the early 20th century. And I think there have been questions in the last, you know, about what it means, sort of the ethics of what it means to do animal experimentation. Um, and yet, and although there have been sort of some new virtual apps that you can sort of dissect a frog without actually dissecting a frog, you can sort of do it all on your iPad app. I think that there's something really powerful of these sorts of hands-on experiments, even if they are freaky and gross and a little weird, that I think students find very compelling. And this is, these are projects that are designed for um, middle school, high school, and college students. So this is very much an, an idea of getting, um, getting kids exposed to some pretty advanced uh, concepts and their advanced biology concepts and electronics concepts as well. Sort of how to how does circuitry work um, in terms of a circuit board? How but how does circuitry work in terms of the brain and the um, and your neural system? And so I think it's a I think it's really interesting. And the, and the, of course they reminded me that like no no bugs are you know no bugs are harmed in the in these things that if you pull a cockroach's leg off it will grow back and cockroaches can survive without their antenna. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I have a hard, I have a hard time mustering too much, sort of. I mean, I think this, this, I, I have a hard time getting too sort of upset about um, uh, cyborg cockroaches. But most of us have squished our fair share of cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. it, but it raises interesting ethical issues, and and sort of surprisingly so. Uh, but these are, good, not, I think, these are good for students to talk about as well. I mean, that's one of the things too. I remember, you know, I remember being in seventh grade and being asked to 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 work on a frog and having all sorts of ethical questions that were never sort of addressed in school. And I think it's important to actually talk about you know, talk about what it means, not just, I mean, on any animal to, you know, to do these experiments. Okay, so a school board member takes a 10th grade standardized test in math and reading. And I think he had a point to prove, and he I did. think he did a good job. T tell us about the story and where it's going. So this was, this was um, so on Monday, the Washington Post um, posted a, wrote a story about the um, an unnamed school board student or school board um, member who decided to take the required tenth grade test in math and reading, and, and the person was you know described as being very successful, um, a successful businessman, you know graduated from um, from college, had several degrees, but he bombed the test. I mean, he bombed it. I think he got a sixty percent on the writing. And he didn't know any of the math questions, but guessed enough to get, I think, 10 out of 60 right. Um, and you're right. I mean, it was, sort of, it was sort of a political stunt in some ways. I mean, this is an elected uh, school board member. But it makes a really good point, which is uh, there is clearly this disconnect between someone's ability to become a successful, you know, to be to be successful at college, to be a successful um, business person, and their test scores. Um, so, are we really testing, as these te you know these tests say, are we testing student ability? Are we testing student performance? Or do you know does this emphasis on the standardized test really miss the boat in capturing um, capturing what students know and what they'll be able to do in the future? Particularly as you know as these you know, as these tests dictate whether or not you get to sort of take college, you know, the college prep classes and whether or not you're sort of college material. 
I thought it was interesting because it opened the door to the argument that uh, so you may not remember what you studied when you were in tenth grade, but you're 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 going through exercises that increase your capacity for logic and reason, and that you're you're not going to remember the specifics, but in fact you are kind of exercising your brain. And I thought, well, so that that then leads to the question of, is that in fact true? Right, and you know, I mean, I think that the the. I, I, earlier this year, and I wrote about this a little bit at the end of the story, earlier this year I interviewed a woman, who, uh, Debbie Steer, uh, who lives in Long Island, and she decided, um, she sort of took it upon herself that her her um, high school age son was going to take the SAT, and he had no no sort of inclination or desire to do well, and she decided that she was going to sort of sit down and do the, you know, take, do the SAT alongside him, um, you know, test out some of these test prep offerings and she was going to ace the SAT. She just sort of set this arbitrary goal. She was going to get a perfect score on the SAT. And she's been blogging about this and chronicling her experiences, which I think have been fascinating too, partially about this notion of a successful adult. I mean, she's, you know, she's worked in the publishing industry for years. She's a, she's also a successful person, um, does, you know, obviously because of her background, knows a lot about writing writes well, um, is well read, um, and yet she's really struggling to sort of perform well on these tests too. And she's been taking all of these test prep offerings and still and finding them to be terrible instruction, overpriced. Sometimes she performs more poorly after trying, you know, these various testing methods. So I think it raises a lot of questions about why we're emphasizing, why we're emphasizing these standardized tests so heavily if um, sort of adults now who who weren't part of that regimen can look and say, man, we can't, we can't, we can't pass these tests. There's a business adage that institutions end up perpetuating the problems they were created to solve. And this raised for me the issue of, you know, have schools become an institution that in order to justify their existence, have to create the very problems they say they're solving. Do you mean in terms of the? Uh, do you mean in terms of sort of the quote failing, failing test sc- falling test scores, failing schools? Well, or? I guess the question is, uh, what ultimately is the goal of education? If the goal of education is to increase learning and knowledge, then um, could we look at the story in, in light of an idea? that they need to create a circumstance in which we feel like we're not succeeding in order to be justified existing. Oh. I know that's going pretty deep. No, I mean, and I think that that's, I think that that's, you know, I think that that's, that's what's been so interesting about watching, you know, back to the data story, watching all of this sort of panic around test scores at the same time that we're seeing sort of cheating scandals. And I think that this is, that this story is another element of it is, you know, clearly, clearly there's this growing sort of sense of something isn't quite right with the tests, perhaps something isn't quite right by the way in which their the scores are used to evaluate students or teachers. Um, and I think that it does. It does seem to sort of make it seem as though if testing is the most important thing, then schools must spend all this time and energy on precisely that, on testing. 
Okay, trend number six. <laughs> Is Khan Academy more than just free educational videos? Um, is this a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask this. Would, how would Finland react to Khan Academy? You know, I, I, I give Khan Academy a pretty hard time, and rightly so, right? This is the person who has more than any other person this year, more than any other education organization, I think, become the darling of the media. And the, 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 the organization that folks are pointing to when we say this is what education of the future should look like. Um, and so that's a pretty important um, position that he's taken in our, in our society as being, you know, people called him the math messiah. Um, and I think that the, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of questions about the way in which his videos, whether or not his videos are so awesome um, I think he deserves high praise for having almost 3,000 videos that he's released for free that are openly licensed that anybody can use and remix and um, without, you know, um, he's made them available through BitTorrent. They're available offline. Um, they, re they really do sort of in some ways represent the potential for open, you know, open resources. Um, but... I don't think that that's actually what Khan Academy is about. I don't think Khan Academy is about creating free videos, even though that's what the story's been about up until this year. He's made it pretty clear um, with, the, with the people that he's hired and with the vision that he's often talked about that he really has a different, he really has this different sort of vision in mind, and it ties back to data. It ties back to this adaptive learning, um, and it's this notion that, you know, we can, that students can watch, students can watch these videos at home, right? That's part of his flipped classroom assignment. But when they're in school and when they're doing these exercises, they're doing these exercises on this Khan Academy platform that is going to be able to deliver them, that they can go the speed they want, deliver them the content that's the best for them, and they can sort of move forward so the stories go that you can be in fourth grade and doing calculus. And I'm suspicious of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it brings together some of the themes we've talked about today. You know, a more sophisticated factory is still a factory, mm -hmm. and it and and in fact, the Finland reference was not completely tongue in cheek because you know, there was very little homework in in the Finnish schools. And the flipped classroom, I've learned this week uh, from from those who are sort of very concerned about homework, uh, sort of a, a a trick way of doing homework. Well, that's. I mean, I you know I, I've. I think a lot about it. It's funny. He's, he's such a lightning rod too. If you look at my, like the most popular posts that I've written on my blog for the last two years. Um, well, the last two years, my blog has only been in existence for two years, but they've all been Khan Academy stories and they have, you know, they have the most comments and half of them tend to be sort of con, you know, Saul Khan changed my life. Now for the first time I understand differential equations. Thank you, Saul Khan. And the other half are, this is sort of an indictment of education these are, this is not how we should, you know, we should be teaching. This is not how most students learn. Um, so I think that it's, and I think that that's part of it too, is that, is this different or is this just, um, how is this different than lecturing? How is this different from a textbook? It's just sort of a textbook delivered orally, right? 
Right. And we've talked a lot about these education startups and the whole sort of mindset of um, the, the large amounts of money going into these companies. I got some um, – I felt better awareness of what's taking place when I talked to my brother about it this week. And he said that uh, typically when people come into an industry – uh, where they see that a problem hasn't been solved, it's very easy to believe that the problem hasn't been solved because there haven't been smart people working on it. And and so education, seen as a problem, that it would be very easy for for Bill Gates and Saul Khan to come in and say, oh, we can solve this. And obviously, there haven't been smart people working on it. Where I would say, well, you know, why aren't you looking at sort of the deep work done by lots of people over decades and centuries yeah. to try and figure out what's going on here? And so I think maybe it's a little bit reflective of that that hubris, that sort of startup hubris that, well, the reason it hasn't been solved is because we haven't been here. Yeah, there was a great post, um, Frank Nochese, who's a physics teacher in New York, um, and sort of one of the people I think who's been sort of been the most vocal about questioning um, questioning Khan Academy, and no, and no small part because you know Khan Academy's focus on sort of science. Um, and Frank's been arguing about Frank makes these arguments about the importance of modeling and the importance of hands-on exploration for students learning about science. But he wrote a fascinating piece on his blog this past week, looking at all of the years of research with physics instruction in particular. That, that about sort of the best some of the best ways for, that students learn. I mean, and there are decades of re, there's decades of research about um, about learning uh, different teaching methods and and, and learning. Um, and one of the things that he, that runs true through all of these is again the importance of hands-on experimentation, and that's just not something that you will get if you're watching um, a bunch of videos, although they are free and openly licensed, and maybe. You, Maybe that's all that Khan Academy will be is just like another another content repository, and that's that's fine. But I think that the vision and certainly the buzz is that this is a man that's doing so much more. Fascinating. Okay, so Motion Math, an app shown to improve test scores. Didn't we go through this ten years ago when we looked at <laughs> educational software? How uh, is it actually doing something that? that regular PC software wasn't able to do? Motion Math, I, um, I, like, I like Motion Math. I like that the, the, the founders are, um, I like Motion Math because I would say that this is what sets them apart, is that the founders actually have a background in education and they have a background in um, instructional design. And they've, so they've been thinking about how can you build, build an app that takes advantage of the, the tablet tech, the iPad tablet technology and make it different. And one of the things that motion math does is that um, it's about fractions um, and they're, they're part of the number line, learning fractions through the number line camp. Um, but uh, it actually uses the, you, 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 you tilt the, the iPad in order to sort of, um, it's like a bouncing ball game. And you tilt the iPad in order to sort of bounce the ball along the number line. So it'll say bounce the ball on two-thirds, for example. And you have to move, tilt the iPad. So there's something about this sort of embodied learning that I think they argue it is what makes it different. And what, certainly what makes it different than looking and sitting at a screen and clicking on things is that your your whole body is, is interacting with it. So I would say that that's something that, that, sets, that sets it apart. Interesting. 
What are the habits of successful charter schools, Audrey? <laughs> the habits of successful charter schools seem sort of like a no-duh thing, which is um, teachers teachers frequently get feedback on how they're doing. Um, they they tutor. They um, they spend a lot of time in the classroom. Um, and that, that charter schools focus, quote, relentlessly on academic achievement. Um, but, but this is a study by Roland Fryer, who just recently won the MacArthur Genius Grant. And he's actually been one of the, he's one of the more interesting education researchers for really calling people to task on, uh, on um, sort of issues of, sort of race and class and, and poverty. And so I thought it was interesting that he's sort of taken the time to look closely at the charter school movement, particularly since it's something that gets pointed to and touted so much as sort of the, you know, the premier alternative to sort of the typical public school system. Uh, I thought it was interesting because maybe that would be our third theme. So theme one for me was the sophisticated factory. Theme two mm -hmm. is would they do it in Finland? Theme three would be that education is a very human endeavor. And at least in our daughter's chartered school, uh, I'm not sure I would have identified those exact same elements, but I would say it's a hugely successful school because the teachers seem to actually care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that's, you know, that's this, that's this piece that, um, to, you know, to come back to, to Khan Academy again, it's this other piece that sort of, or even to, to Newton or these other sort of, um, more computer mediated ex learning, uh, learning scenarios is that without that caring teacher there, the, the, I would say that a caring teacher is, is has a sophisticated way of uh, do, uh, providing adaptive learning that um, that I think we shouldn't we shouldn't overlook, right? Ah, uh, maybe that's our model. Maybe the you know, the model of the brain and the inability of the computer to actually replicate all that the brain does it becomes kind of a mental model for thinking about the complexity of teaching. Mm -hmm. Ah, I have to think about that. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm so excited. Dreambox has cracked the code. Um, I, I celebrated. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't leave a flippant remark at the end of that because I felt that you know anything that um, that we hear from John Doerr about right now in terms of um, sort of the what's what's hot and great and innovative is just highly suspicious anyway. So, what about Edmodo? Edmodo, this is interesting. I mean, I, Edmodo, Edmodo has had a incredible year. I mean, they, I talked about them briefly in the, the, the trends post about social media. So this is a company, this is a startup that offers schools a sort of, quote, safe social network, social learning experience, right? So you can, it looks very much like Facebook, um, but you can sort of use Edmodo in your classes to sort of, to, to have, to, you know, that offers grading, you can have discussions, you can share content with your students that way. Um, and they raised $15 million this week. Um, a couple of interesting byproducts of that is that Reid Hoffman, so the founder of LinkedIn, will now join their board. And um, employee, I think uh, Matt Kohler was like employee number seven at Facebook, and he's also going to be joining their board. So Edmodo is, you know, so, this, so the news goes, Edmodo is now going to be able to sort of tap into these two really important social networks, right? A professional social network and a social network. And think, thinking about what does that mean in terms of the social graph, the professional graph, and in the case of Edmodo, perhaps the 
the education graph. But here's the here's the kicker is that Edmodo has no revenue. Like they they don't make any money. So I don't I don't even know I, I mean I, I think it's a it's a great product. They're a great team. I like I've met them. I think they're they're great people. Um, but they aren't making any money. So this reminds me of Ning. It does. In in the sense that you get to a place where accepting that much venture capital, somebody's looking for a return. And uh, do you, does the focus completely shift from the valuable outcomes to the need to make money? Yeah, and I pressed I pressed um, Nick Borg, the CEO, about this in the call. I mean, uh, because I said, you know, this, you know, if you look at what if you look at what Facebook has done to make money, right? It's 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 advertising. I don't think that that's not going to fly. I don't think, at least, I don't think that that would fly in in the K through 12 schools where Edmodo has been adopted. If you looked at how Netflix is, or excuse me, LinkedIn, LinkedIn has made money. It's also through advertising, but they've been doing a lot of interesting data stuff behind the scenes, and I'm, it's not going to surprise me to see um, LinkedIn doing something with its data. So I asked, you know, I asked Nick about. Edmodo's plans for for data are they going to be you know, mining this? I mean that's that's the thing, right? If are they going to be mining this data and selling? I don't know. Not selling student data makes it sound awful, but um, is that their? You know, I mean, is that where they're right? And whether it's mining the data or something else, when you get that much money, somebody's expecting a return. That was my thought, which was it puts you in a very it puts you in a position where you end up having to run the business for the profits rather than the passion, yeah. and that's sort of an age old story. Um, and then, sort of finally, the badges for lifelong learning. I just wanted to make an announcement that uh, I, I interviewed Mark uh, Sermon from Mozilla Foundation about the for the first stage, and we're going to be doing um, a show on the second stage and where things are with that project uh, at the end of the month. Oh, so excellent! Should be more more interesting news about what's going on there. Audrey, a terrific week uh, again. The highlight of my week is is reading your posts okay, and thinking you. about these things. And I really appreciate you uh, doing this with me. This has been great. Yeah, this is, I've got four more of these, wait, is that right? Yeah, four more of these trends posts. And then next week I'm going to be picking my favorite new ed tech startups of the year. So that'll be interesting. Ah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you then. Bye. Bye.